Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership. And we do so by talking with recognized leaders who do not merely have jobs, but men and women who have been called to their chosen sphere of influence. Hey, today we have Dr. Matt Hazard with us. Very excited to be able to have you on the show and uh, just to be able to talk a little bit about your story, uh, how God has brought you to where you are in life. Uh, uh, Dr. Hazard is a very successful surgeon, and I know he's a super humble guy, so I know that he tends to stay away from any of those illustrious designations. But tell us a little bit about your story, Matt, and just, and just what God has done uh, in preparation to what you're doing now in service. Sure. And thank you, Dr. Taylor. It's an honor and privilege to be here with you today and to be asked to even do this. Um, I feel highly underqualified <laughs> to be talking about leadership, but here we are. <laughs> so um, I'm currently a, a neurosurgeon, uh, which is a uh, doctor that works on brains and spines. I guess that's the best way to describe it. And um, uh, currently working out of Northside Hospital in Lawrenceville, primarily. I have uh, been out of training uh, for the last seven years. Prior to that, I was uh, trained in neurosurgery at Duke. And um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it is uh, to kind of jump to the end first, but it, it's amazing to see how God works in and through your life and through the people in your life um, to prepare you for different tasks in uh, leadership. And so, so kind of walk us through the story of the inception of that. Had you always wanted to be a surgeon uh, tell us kind of what that looked like in your childhood in preparation for that. As you know, we have here the opportunity to work with a lot of students, right? And so, and so they're constantly wondering what that story looks like. And I'm forever reinforcing with them the mindset of, hey, you don't need to know 17 steps ahead. No. Be faithful in your next step and watch God direct your path, you know? So take us okay. kind of back to young Matt. And, and, and tell us about what that looks like as you're working towards, the, you know, being a neurosurgeon. That's sure. a big deal. So. Sure. Well, I still had red hair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, I, I grew up, my, my dad was in healthcare administration, and my mom was a nurse, although she took time off uh, during childhood to stay at home with the kids and raise us, and uh, grateful for that. But I was kind of exposed to the healthcare industry rather early uh, in my life. And um, being in the, in the hospital was never uncomfortable to me because that was where I'd go to see my dad at work or um, just, just grew up with a general comfort level about being around medicine or healthcare. Now, he was administration or he was a doctor, uh, oh, yeah. MD he, as well? He was in administration. Okay. So um, he, he uh, uh, kind of worked his way up through the, the ranks of administration. And uh, because of that, I was able to interact quite a, uh, quite a lot with the different physicians of different backgrounds and specialties. And um, g growing up throughout school, I, I always had kind of an interest in the biological sciences. I felt that they were pretty easy for me to understand and um, interesting and intriguing. So um, having that kind of bath background and being fairly adept in like math and science, uh, my dad was very helpful in kind of guiding and direct me through which paths do you think might fit that. And um, Initially, I thought I may be a cardiothoracic surgeon, so a heart and lung doctor or surgeon. And the reason for that was I was exposed to it. Uh, my dad ran one of the largest heart and lung institutes at that time. And so I had the opportunity to meet with some of the cardiothoracic surgeons, spend some time in their lab, 
and um, get some exposure there. And I honestly had some candid conversations with some of the top um, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons at that time, a guy named Dr. Lehman Gray, and he, he dissuaded me uh, from cardiothoracic surgery, kind of uh, made it seem as if the heyday of cardiothoracics was in the past, in like the 80s and 90s, and that a lot of the business was being eroded away by different specialties, and um, that I may not I may not find it as interesting for the long haul or intriguing to hold my interest over a career um, and to keep my options open. And at that point in time, that was in high school, I still wasn't convinced that I was going to do medicine. Uh, but again, I, God gifts you with certain natural talents and abilities and personality and those sorts of things that kind of lead you or guide you in a direction. And at, for a moment, I toyed with the idea of being a developer, like a land developer. I'm terrible with that kind of math, <laughs> so I just decided, no, that's not for me. So then um, fast forward a little bit, uh, went to undergrad at a small private liberal arts school called Spring Arbor. It's a mm -hmm. Christian school in uh, southern Michigan. And um, I was actually third generation. So my okay. grandfather went there when it was a junior college. My parents met there. I met Lindsay there. That's so right. it's a great place to meet a wife. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, so, my experiences there also helped to prepare me and shape me for a career in medicine. So, for instance, uh, you had to pick a major, of course, going into, into school. And um, we didn't have a defined pre-med major at that point in time at Spring Arbor. It was more either you picked biology or chemistry or something like that. And so I did biology with a pre-med emphasis. And uh, my roommate at that time also was pre-med. So um, we had several classes in common. And... I'll tell you that the um, professors that we had at Spring Arbor were phenomenal in terms of their ability to relate with you on a personal level. Again, it's a smaller Christian school, so um, you didn't feel like a number. You had a relationship with the actual uh, professors that were teaching you, as well as with the uh, president of the university. And uh, through my relationship with him, and at the time, great dude, Gail Beebe, he's now at, at Westmont College, I think in um, California, but uh, he invited me and a couple of other pre-med students to go and visit with one of the older neurosurgeons in a place called Saginaw, Michigan. Mm. His name was Dr. Malcolm Fields, and he must have been, had to be in his 70s at that point in time. And, uh, you know, I didn't really have any exposure to neurosurgery outside of what you see on TV. Right. Um, and so I didn't really know what is, what is the life like for a neurosurgeon. And so we got to go up and shadow him for, I would say, the better part of a day and just spend some time interacting with him. And he was so passionate about what he was doing and about taking care of people and trying to help people. And I thought he was an amazing intellect, too, just, just a bright dude. And um, that kind of sparked my interest. I said, well, you know, that's pretty cool. I think the nervous system's pretty cool. And he gets to help people by using his mind and his hands together. Uh, so maybe, maybe I'd look into that. But the first step is you can't choose what you're going to do. You have to figure out kind of the path there. So um, kind of like you were pointing to before, maybe we're talking off camera, but um, there are steps uh, to get, to, <laughs> to, get right. to a destination. And you don't have to see the end necessarily or, you ha or all the steps in between. You might have a goal, and then you just take the next right step uh, towards that goal. And things can change, you know. Uh, you can pivot and move. And um, so... I knew that I had to do the best I could in undergrad right, right. to give me the best shot of getting to medical school if I wanted to do that. Right. If um, you're dreaming big, you, you, have to, you have to lay the right foundation. That, that, right? That's right. That's right. So 
Um, being diligent in my studies in high school prepared me for college, right? And I would say all the way around. You can go maybe back to kindergarten, but, <laughs> but either way, high school prepares you for college, so you just got to do the best in high school you can to get to college. College is the same way to prepare you for whatever's next after college, whether that's graduate school as it was for me or um, a career. And, um, and I knew that I just had to do the best in my coursework so that I wasn't limiting myself. Did that motivation for excellence, had that always existed with you, or was that, was that a dynamic that you came to grips with particular grade in high school or college or or had that just had that been something always like you're preparing yourself for the biggest thing that God can bring you into that's a very very good question and I I think of um, excellence as uh, you know measuring uh, what am I doing versus what's the best I can do right so is kind of a a personal how do you judge um, how you're doing based on your potential so to speak and I believe that a lot of that was instilled early on in my childhood, my upbringing, right. my mom, my dad, and um, always, always proud of the work you're doing, but always pushing you to say, hey, you know, you're doing a great job, but you, could, you can do this a little bit better. Right. We know that you've got the potential uh, to do better. Right. So I think a lot of that has to do with um, my, my childhood and upbringing. And then, of course, there's always a piece of it that has to be intrinsic in right. you. Um, and kind of that drive to continue to push yourself um, to learn more, to grow more, to uh, just grow as a person and, and, and um, grasp more of more knowledge, so to speak. Right. I mean, you grew up in success. You right. grew up in excellence. But at some point in time, you can't just have vicarious success or vicarious excellence. At some point in time, you have to choose that this is going to be yours. That's right. You know, um, I, I love the experience, too, at the small Christian school. I mean, here you go on to go to, go to Duke uh, and, yeah. and the small Christian school. Did that help you uh, understand the blending of the academic pursuit, medical pursuit, but also faith? That's one thing I've always been impressed with you and Lindsay is that there is no compartmentalization with you guys. Uh, Christ is the center of every part of your day. And this has been something I've loved about you guys. Did you learn a lot of that there? Yeah, I, I believe that... Um I believe that that was formative, uh, for sure. I think that in that coursework, you're not just taking, uh, it's not a bachelor in science where you're only taking your classes, your accredited, your, the classes that you need to take to complete your major. You, you're exposed to the liberal arts. And I think that um, that helps to expand your mind in, in, in addition to the fact that it's Christian-based. Right. Uh, so uh, your, world, your worldview is... Um, modeled by your professors and then also taught to you um, and I think that that's super helpful um, for the long term in terms of what you're going to eventually do in a career it's not just your career that's just part of your life I and, love that yeah, yeah so. I love that all right Jim jump back into your sure. journey we're, we're, we're finishing up at the Christian school now bring yeah. me on with that next step like because because you, again you're motivated from from an early age to to yes, move sir. forward to this well again that that experience with um Dr. Fields up in Saginaw, the neurosurgeon, was, uh, was huge. It kind of sparked my interest. And then the next step from uh, that is not, I didn't think I was going to do neurosurgery yet, but I was a little bit more intrigued about medicine and going to medical school. And so um, that's what I did. And uh, some advice to your students, never take one of these tests, like an MCAT or an LSAT or one of these preparatory tests for graduate school or any, anything for that matter, without doing the adequate preparation. Mm-hmm. Because I took it the first time and out of arrogance thought I didn't need to study for it. 
Interesting. Bad idea. <laughs> so I did not score the best. It wasn't the worst, but it was not the best. And it did not give me the best um, uh, platform, so to speak, or portfolio to go out and apply to med schools. Right. So the first time I applied, I did not get in. Uh, so I, and I only got a couple of schools that even interviewed me, like Indiana and uh, Louisville, something like that. So, and I was pretty sure, by the way, that I wanted to go to Indiana, uh, mostly for the in-state tuition. Because, again, I, I was just kind of uh, raised in Indiana, and my parents still lived in Indiana. And in-state tuition drops, if for people that don't know, drops your, uh, at least the tuition by about half, which is significant. And, um, and so th- that, that was a good uh, pause. It was a good arrest. It was a good teaching moment to say, look, uh, you got to take this seriously. If this is really what you want to do, then buckle down. I ended up taking one of those Kaplan courses mm-hmm. that prepares you for the test because there's, a, there's an art to actually taking the test. Right. It doesn't matter how smart you might be in the field. You have to learn how to take the test. Mm-hmm. And we can comment on how silly that is or not, but it's just part of it. That's the hurdle. you got to jump over it. So um, I did take a year off between undergrad, completion of undergrad, and uh, medical school to do some research in a pri- uh, private practice, family practice in uh, Jackson, Michigan. Mm. Um, Linz and I had gotten married the week after we graduated undergrad. Nice. Which was, uh, it was fantastic <laughs> and also like hectic within a week of graduating and then we got married and those sorts of things, but don't regret it at all. It was fantastic. And so she and I stayed in the Jackson, Michigan area there for the next year while she worked and uh, worked on some of her preparatory work for her graduate uh, school, and I worked on research. And that research, it was not in a field that I was interested in at all. It was in medical urology, mm-hmm. and, but it didn't matter because it prepared you for, well, what is clinical research and how, how is this helpful in the long run? And I will tell you that the number of publications I was able to glean out of that year of work were instrumental into bolstering my portfolio mm-hmm. or my resume for uh, getting into medical school. So, no, there's a lot of detail there, but long story short, the next year took MCAT, did, did great, uh, got into Indiana University School of Medicine. Actually, Lynn's and I both got accepted down to that same campus in Indianapolis where she completed her graduate work, her master's work in social work, and uh, then I started medical school in Indianapolis. And, and I love the part of that story that th- that episode could have defeated a lot of people. Matter of fact, yeah. I met with a guy about two weeks ago. I was chatting with him and he did not score well the first time he took, took it. And, and really he changed careers. Like he really changed paths. And, and I, I think anyone who's moving in that direction is already bright, right? So you're already, you've already been hailed as you've come through high school, as you've come through your undergrad as being, you know, closer to the top, you know? Yeah. And, and I, th- I think there could be a component to that to say, Hey, I'm swimming in a whole lot bigger pool at this point in time. And, and you go from being the tip top to, to being a portion of the tip top, you know? Yeah. And I love the fact that that didn't defeat. Instead, there's a reset. I also like, because you've introduced a theme that we've heard a lot on the show, uh, where you got the guidance of an older mentor, mm-hmm. where you were listening to Dr. Fields and really seeing what that path could look like. And that's something crucial. It's why, frankly, we started a J-term here mm-hmm. on campus. Uh, it's why we have such a, such a rigorous mentoring program here on campus. It's, it's why our kids in our junior and senior year are getting in on internships because we want them to see what that looks like. If they can see a Dr. Hazard and say, goodness, I think I could do that, you know, right. but it takes them 
really being able to communicate. So I, so I love those two themes. Now, now jump me into, mm-hmm. um, uh, as you're working in your residency, yes, you know, sir. we hear the stories about just how grueling that residency mm-hmm. and you're at Duke. Uh, so walk us through kind of what that looks like sure. and tell us from an academic perspective, but also now you, you are also married and so you've mm-hmm. got a family in tow. What does that look like, you know, going through that training? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, after choosing to do uh, neurosurgery, there's this whole process called the match where you interview at places and the places interview you and a computer kind of matches you up together. So Linz and I were not expecting to go to Duke. Let me put it that way. Um, So there's there's more of a God story there than and I'll I'll just highlight that a little bit is we thought we were either going to stay in Indianapolis or maybe go to Phoenix. Those were kind of my top two programs. And Duke was my third uh, on the list. And again, it's this whole strange ranking system that you don't do, just just get to choose where you go. Uh, the programs have to rank you, and you rank the programs, and a computer literally matches you up. You have this thing called match day uh, during your fourth year of medical school where you, you are with your whole class, and they call you up on stage, and you open an envelope, and you figure out where you're going. No kidding. Really. It's, um, like Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah, the sorting hat. The sorting That's hat. right. That's right. That's almost like that. Yeah. And it's really wild because there's a lot of emotions involved with that. Um, but, but the way that God prepared us for that is that Lindsay had already, as a part of her career, had spent time in Chapel Hill doing research uh, with kids who have autism and such, um, and had spent time in that area and was like, you know, if we had to move anywhere outside Indianapolis. So cool. I would like to go there. Now, Okay, well, you know, so again, that's not, that's not me making the right. choice. That's it's almost like God's in control. Yeah, <laughs> weird, almost. Weird how that works. <laughs> so he certainly is sovereign and opened that door, um, and that's where he wanted us. That's awesome. So super cool. There's more detail there, but we don't need to get into that. So then in residency, yeah, that's a really, really, I will say a tough time uh, and even a dark time um, in life, and then I don't, Unfortunately, I don't reflect, reflect on it fondly, although I, I understand I've grown significantly from it. Um, but it's, it's a tough thing. It's like being put in a crucible. Right, right. right. So, um, so, yeah, we, we went there. She uh, was doing research at uh, UNC with kids who have autism and ADHD. I was doing my residency. Because we had no kids, That uh, we were kind of like ships passing in the night sometimes. Right. It was... Um, a lot of work on both ends. Um, and so that was really, really tough. I can't tell you I had any appropriate balance in life. It was all uh, neurosurgery training. And to the point, like, and this is not a joke, at night if you um, went home, you know, after working and you wanted to just relax and, uh, you know, have a meal with your friends, I'd eat the meal and I'd be passed out <laughs> afterwards. And they always would make fun of me, like, oh, there's Hazard sleeping again or whatever. Right. But it's just you have no you're so tired you have no reserve right so. uh, my my uh my best friend is a physician and and uh he talks about just the abusiveness mm. of of that time frame that it really he said like you, there's no way you can phrase it in any other way that it really is it's like it's it's abusive and there what he kind of phrased it as is that you're you are going to have to be prepared to carry uh, a lot of weight. So that is yeah. a weighty situation. And it's not that the weight gets less, you just get better at carrying the load. 
Right. You know, and so you, 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 there's, it's learning through occurrences. It's learning through situations. So if you're not in the hospital when such and such takes place, then you've missed that opportunity. That's right. And, uh, and that's why you're just there nonstop, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a, and that's a huge situation. Now in your current position, mm-hmm. do you have the opportunity to teach as well? Do you have residents? Do you have young physicians around you? What does that look like? Yeah, very good question. So we don't have a neurosurgery residency training program, but there are residents actually in the hospital uh, in different fields, uh, mostly internal medicine or emergency department. Um, but, but beyond that, you have your whole team around you that you also have to kind of help and uh, teach. So you have a, a team of uh, physician assistants or PAs, or uh, sometimes they call them advanced practice providers, APPs. Um, you have your, uh, your nurses and MAs, and it, it is a, it's entirely a, a team approach. Um, so currently, I'm not involved in direct um, teaching of a resident, mm-hmm. but during residency, you were because as a senior resident, you're responsible for helping the junior residents not only learn, but um, teaching them how to do things, how to do different surgeries, and make sure they're not making silly mistakes. So. Mm-hmm. I've been involved in that sort of role before, and quite honestly, I don't know what the future holds, whether that will be a part of the, of the future uh, or, or my future career. I'm not sure. Um, not opposed to it. It's mm-hmm. just at this point in time, uh, God has me in a different role. What does your typical work week look like? Are you in surgery the entire time? Are you also doing the pre, pre-meetings with the patients? What, what, does, what does your typical work, as a neurosurgeon, sure. what does that look like for you? Yeah, no problem. Um, so, yeah, you've got a balance in neurosurgery uh, of clinic or office where you are seeing patients that have either uh, have not had surgery but are interested in surgery or um, are trying to look for treatment options or they've already had surgery and you're seeing how they're doing. Um, or uh, you're in the OR where you're doing the actual surgeries. Um, and then part of the responsibility is also covering the patients in the hospital, the people that come to the emergency department with um, well, emergency issues that need to be admitted to the hospital. Um, and again, what, what we specifically help with is anything from a brain or spine perspective that may require surgical intervention. Not all of the diseases of the brain and spine right. do, um, but my work week presently looks like this. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, I have OR, so I'm usually in the operating room. And Tuesday and Thursday, I take, typically have clinic or office. Um, on an OR day, uh, what does that look like? Well, you're up pretty early. The OR typically gets started around 7.30 a.m. Of course, you have to see the patients before surgery. And, um, and then it can last, uh, depending on how many cases you have, it could last till 3 o'clock or 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock or just until the job's done, so to speak. Um, and that's an elective week. And a, a, a clinic day looks like usually 8.30 or 9 to 3 or 4 in the afternoon, just seeing patients. Um, if you're on call, that means that you're the one that's responsible for answering the phone calls if there are emergencies in the hospital. And that can be very disruptive, to be honest with you. Uh, I struggled with that a lot initially coming out um, into practice and trying to understand that uh, I felt call was such a burden, right? Such a huge interruption and a burden to take on. And thankfully, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm a, more, I'm a work in progress, but, but the, Lord <laughs> is, the Lord is good. And he um, is, is gently helping me to understand that it's an opportunity uh, rather than a burden. Mm-hmm. So um, clearly he's not going to put someone in front of me unless he, 
they're intended to be in front of me. That's right. right so. How do you incorporate faith into what you into, into what your daily or weekly life looks like? How, how do you incorporate that? Do you have the freedom to do so? You know, you, you kind of have the enormous privilege uh, and responsibility slash burden of being kind of at the crossroads of sometimes people's right. largest episodes in life. And what a, what a responsibility that is. But to know that God is in that, how, so how does, how does faith play into that role for you? Yeah, I th- another great question. I think that um, God is so good that he allows us to come alongside him and work with him. Um, you know, we're not working necessarily um, in parallel or uh, distance, mm-hmm. working together. And uh, he doesn't need my help right. to fix somebody's back or somebody's brain or something. He doesn't need me. But um, in order to provide me dignity and self-worth, I'm sorry if I'm getting emotional, but yeah. he invites you into that work. That's right. To have the opportunity to use your skills, talents, and abilities to help other people. That's right. That's all right. Take a drink. I, listen, I, I feel the same way in my setting. I, I say it all the time around here uh, that, that the fact that the Lord permits broken vessels like each of us to be involved in a, in a work that is not just temporal but eternal is a huge thing. That's that, huge. That, that yeah. God gave you these skills. Yep. God gave you this ability. It's, it's awesome. Keep rolling. And, and, and to be fair and to uh, piggyback off you what, just, what you just said is that's not unique to what I do. Mm-hmm. That is in all of the fields, in all the careers, that he has value for all of those. And, and once, he wants that. He wants people to, to want to work with him. That's right. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a living representation of the body of Christ. That when we see, you know, I, I am doing just what I'm supposed to do. Right. Like, I, like I am in the center of, right. I mean, and, and I, I certainly wasn't smart enough to get here. You know, I, the, the Lord, the Lord's let me live in the center in spite of right. me. Uh, he has really orchestrated and directed my path. And your, your story is the same thing. Yep. And to me, that's the body of Christ. Right. As I have the, the privilege of working with young people, you know, what I try to tell them is, listen, you can, you can absolutely be a missionary. Like you're, you're a servant uh, uh, for Christ. And whether that's you're being called to be an accountant or a neurosurgeon right. Right. or a school administrator mm-hmm. or whatever that is that, that God's giving us that opportunity for us to come into alignment with the creator of yep. the universe and for him to allow a broken guy uh, to yep. be still a part of that. It's just, it's enormous. You it know? is. Um, do you, are there times where you have a chance to pray with patients or anything like that? Is there the freedom or is there no freedom in the medical community for that? Yeah, great question as well. So I would say that, um, I, initially when I came out of residency, uh, I was not the most forthcoming in terms of those things with my patients, but if they brought it up, I would be happy to talk to them about spiritual things or pray with them. Um, I have since making the transition over to Northside, I've been a little bit more, um, I say liberal about it, but I at least before surgery, when I when I meet with a patient, uh, and I, I can't say it's 100% of the time, but most of the time, I will ask them, is it okay if, if I pray with nice. you? And um, you'd be surprised. Most people have no problem with it. Right. Uh, whether they're of faith or not, I've only had one so far say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm, and, and that's okay. And I, and I, I have thankfully have not been reprimanded for doing so. I hope I don't get reprimanded, but I think that it's all in the approach. Right. Like how you do things matters. Right. And um, 
and for me just to say, hey, you know, would it bother you if I said a word of prayer with you? And again, most people, eh, 90% plus on the other end of it, either they themselves or their family members have been like, thank you, thank you so much for doing that. It put us at such ease. We're so pleased, blah, blah, blah. And that's not me. Right. That's God in you. Yeah. I've, I've, one of my good friends, his name is Dr. David Palmer. He's a surgeon in Savannah. And uh, he actually, uh, I blew up my shoulder a few years ago. I'm still thinking that I'm 20. That's, the, <laughs> that's really the, the main issue with me is that. I'm still thinking I'm a little kid. And uh, so anyway, I blew my shoulder out weightlifting with a bunch of teenagers. Oh, yeah. It's really what I did, right? Stupid. Uh, but anyway, David, David's this brilliant surgeon. He reconstructed my, my, my shoulder. And uh, I got to say, you know, he came in and, and I thought he was just praying with me, you know, because he knows me. And uh, he came in, hey, JT, you know, hey, I'm going to pray with you. And, and I was so reassured by that. Mm-hmm. But what was cool is that I heard him three different times walk down the road to other people who were going to be operating on that day. Right. And he was praying with every person. Yeah. And I asked him about it after the surgery. And he said, he said, and he's a guy in his probably mid, mid to late fifties. Mm-hmm. And he said, my whole career, I've only had two people tell me no. And he said, you know, we have people from every walk, every faith background, mm-hmm. everything. But when you're there at the crossroads, he said, and if the Lord's blessed me to be at the crossroads, then I'm going to exercise that, you know? That's and, right. uh, and so I, I, I applaud you. I just think that, you know, when you're at the center of that idea when you're right there at the, some of the hardest times in someone's entire life, man, what a, what a blessing that is. The job that you have is weighty. Uh, you know, when, when I look at, at, at surgeons, particularly people who are doing brain surgery or cardiothoracic surgery, you know, literally you're at that spot where people live or die. And, and so the, the weight on that is, is, I would imagine very, very challenging. I certainly can't relate to that. You know, if I mess up my, up my day, nobody's going to die. Uh, and, and, and so how do you then have that work-life balance? Uh, are you able to shut that down when you come home and to be an awesome husband and an awesome dad? Uh, how does that look? Like, what does that look like? Well, you're going to have to ask my wife and kids about that, <laughs> how awesome. But, um, yeah, no, that, that is definitely a, a key factor in this is, you know, how do you not take the weight of the world with you when right. you go home? Uh, how do you decompress? Um, and, and quite honestly, it used to be uh, a lot worse. Um, I think I, I would uh, ruminate on things, and I think that by nature a lot of surgeons are a little bit OCD, Sure. So you obsess or, or think about things and how, how could I have done this differently? How, um, uh, you know, why is this patient in this situation? What did I do wrong or what went wrong? Mm-hmm. And, and you can continue to just chew on that. And that's just how my brain works. And part of, the, part of that is really good. Right. Right. That's how we. <laughs> I want my surgeon thinking about, <laughs> thinking about my case all the time. Part, part of that's really good. And the other, it can be distracting from uh, the present, that's you know, right. to stay uh, present with your family and be. Um, in the moment with them. And so, uh, again, the Lord is so good and to, to help me throughout the last several years to become a little bit uh, perfect, but again, getting more and more present and able to kind of let that other stuff go because I realize, uh, you know, control <laughs> controls an illusion, right? That's so right. there's only so much of, of what I do that I actually have some sort of control over and, uh, and, uh, Regardless, it's up to him, right? right. It's, I'm going to do my best uh, with the talents that he's given me to do that and, and hopefully do the right thing for patients. That's treat others as you want to mm-hmm, be treated. Mm-hmm. 
um, and I got to leave the rest up to him. And if 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 they succeed or if they fail, if I have success or failure, it doesn't take away from his glory. You know, there's there's a phrase that I say all the time, but I, I say, "Be where you are." And it really involves that idea of the work-life balance. I, I don't think I did that very well in my 30s, to be totally honest. I thought I think I began to maybe explore doing a little bit better job in my 40s. Um, but just the idea, of, hey, when I'm at work, I'm working. And I'm working like a beast, and I'm working long hours, and I'm doing my thing. But when I go home, I'm, tr- I'm going to try to be home, you know. And, uh, and that's such a, that's such a big piece, you know, but I, I just want you to know, listen, I've admired the fact I know what kind of a weighty job that you have. And yet, man, you're a dad who's still present here and, 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 you know, clearly loving your wife, clearly caring for, for your family. And, and that's just such a huge blessing. And it's a great example for other people to be able to see, Hey, let's go macrocosmic here just for a little bit. Yeah. Um, healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of in our in our nation, you know, there's a there's a uh, there are a lot of things that are broken about it. Uh, I was born and raised in Canada, so I kind of have this you know kind of socialist healthcare mindset every so often. Um, I was in a conference last week with a group of Americans and Canadians, and and it was like listen, hear, hearing the Canadians try to digest what we are paying on healthcare uh, each month and and what a burden that can be. Uh, discuss a little bit about kind of the healthcare system. Uh, are you seeing changes take place? Are you seeing positive steps? Are there particular elements that are broken that you're that you're kind of in the process of trying to have those corrected? What, what, what are your thoughts on kind of the healthcare system in America? I know that's a big question, but. <laughs> yeah, and I do not profess to be an expert in uh, any of that, but, but I, can, uh, I, can, I can say that, uh, unfortunately, there are several problems in the healthcare industry. Um, I think there, there's a problem with, uh, with sort of middleman providers. And I got to be careful here because I'm sure that, that we have people that work in the insurance right, industry sure. and that yeah. sort of thing. Uh, but but I think that uh, I don't want to say it's a completely broken system, but I think the system could work better for more people. Um, I tend to think that we should be able to provide some level of healthcare coverage for everybody. Uh, and you know, I think you know to again give people dignity and self worth. Maybe they can then. Uh, if they have a basic level of coverage and they want to work up to a different level of coverage, that's okay. But I don't know what that looks like. But I try to go back and think, okay, well, how would Christ do this? How, right. how would he set up a healthcare system and uh, make sure that we're taking care of the poor and the needy? And, and, uh, and yet, you know, being good financial stewards. And I don't have the answer mm-hmm. to any of that. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, this is to your point, too, that... One of the reasons that I made a transition uh, in my job recently to, to join Northside rather than uh, my prior employer is that my the way that I get paid has nothing to do with the insurance you have, which I love. So interesting. So okay. I don't have to be concerned about if you have no insurance or the best insurance, I can treat you as a human being the way that I think you know that God would want you to be treated. So. So that piece of it, taking that out of the equation for me personally, has been a huge relief. Uh, because prior to that, you can imagine if you're taking call and you get called, for instance, on uh, someone who has no insurance that broke their back and requires this extensive multi-hour surgery with lengthy recovery, the first thing that pops in my mind is not, oh, I'm so grateful that I get to do that. You're thinking, wait a second, I'm taking care of this patient. I get all the medical legal liability. I can still get sued for helping them. And I get sort of nothing monetarily out of it. So, again, I'm not saying the way I was thinking about it was correct at the time, right. but I just felt this kind of like 
this just is not fair. I can't even claim it as a tax exemption. It's just I'm getting used. Um, and again, this new role has helped me kind of accept it. I don't, it doesn't really matter. I get paid to do the work that I'm doing, which is great. And also realize that, um, you know, it is an opportunity to help people regardless of their station in life. Mm. I, and, and I love the fact that that's a big reason why you chose this place. Yeah. You know, right. uh, coming to coming to Georgia is not, has not been part of your trajectory. Not at uh, all. Yeah. You know, and yet, and yet that's a big reason why you chose that. Um, as we think about just kind of the, the role of physician, and, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly heard a lot of people pray about uh, God as the great physician, and, and uh, you know, we understand his healing power. Have you seen miraculous occurrences transpire in, in, in your medical experience. Have you seen those things? Yeah, I think, um, you know, then we have to go back and define miracle, right? Sure. So, <laughs> so I think that, um, uh, you know, a miracle would be some sort of um, unexpected outcome uh, without a known natural explanation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a very good uh, yeah, definition good, or good not, definition. But, but it's, you know, some, it seems to me that it would have to be supernatural or at least beyond um, my ability to understand it presently. Sure. Uh, I fully believe that there's no conflict between God and science. God made science. So um, I also fully believe that we are continually unraveling how God made things, which makes it so cool. That's how we learn about physics and we learn about the laws of the universe and this and that. And same in medicine, Mm -hmm. we don't have all the answers. And so it's very humbling to, to actually admit that in front of patients. A lot of times people will come in with these catastrophic uh, brain bleeds or uh, strokes or, and they want to know the prognosis. They want to know what is it going to look like in a year from now or two years from now. And all we can draw upon is a small body of literature that says, well, it could look like this or it could look like this. But for sure, I have seen people that probably shouldn't be <laughs> able to walk. I've mm-hmm. seen them able to walk. That's right. Um, and I've seen people who uh, were going to be kind of signed off on uh, who've had a traumatic brain injury and they were, their family or loved ones were kind of being prompted to maybe uh, consider withdrawal of care. I have seen them walk into my office a year later and say, thank you that you said, give them time and see how they do. So, right. Uh, my friend who's a physician, he says, you know, I've seen God work in, in mysterious ways. A part of that mystery is that God would ever choose uh, somebody like me to be a part of the healing process. That's right. Like, that's actually part of the miracle just there. That's right. You know, and, uh, and that God would guide my hands to be able to operate and to do this thing. That's part of the miraculous process. That's so right. it's, it's like the, the whole approach is in humility, which, which I, that's how we began this session. Uh, and that's how we can close out this session, frankly. But it's that idea of humility right. and understanding that God is permitting you to be a part of his eternal work. And that's where you got emotional with that oh, mindset yeah. of, of, God, of you having that privilege to let God be a part of it. You know, um, hey, you know, we have this opportunity where we get to guide and direct students. And, uh, and that is such a great way f- for us to approach this idea of, of approaching what God has called us to do with humility. Uh, so often I'm hearing from young people and older people about the direction of their life. And I usually try to tell adults if they're in a situation where they have no passion, change it. I mean, you're one master's away and master's are small degrees. You know, change it, change your, change your path. Uh, and with our students, I say, be faithful where you are. I love the messaging that you're giving this morning too, is that 
if God's calling you to something big, which, which you felt from an early age, God was calling you to something big, then it, it required some preparation for that. So for us to be prepared for it and then to be faithful in the next step. It doesn't take the test for you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's we, exactly. still, we still right. have to do the studying. That's right. You know, we still have to do the work, but, mm-hmm. but he's going to still orchestrate our path, which is such a great thing. Right. Uh, Dr. Hazard, it's been such a pleasure to have you on, on the show today. It's my pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Just to hear about how God's using you, but also just to, to really let our audience understand what this philosophy is of, of surrendering our path, no matter what it is, uh, to God's direction. It's a powerful right. example for our students as well. So thank you for jumping onto the show. Uh, thank you for being faithful into what God has called you and uh, for carving out a little bit of time uh, out of your day to, to jump in on this. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me again. Um, I'm honored and privileged to be here and um, happy to help. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Joy of Leadership podcast, where we emphasize the blessings of leadership and our call to this vital role. 